A lot of people around the world actually regard this test as one of, if not the hardest test in the world. These people are nuts. I will never pursue this. I think I've embodied his headspace before where I feel like something has to happen, otherwise I'm not going to be okay. I kind of worried about him. Like, what drives someone? I actually don't think I have the mental fortitude to do the SEAL training. There is a little seed in me, even though it's probably wrong, that thinks I could become a grandmaster. You feel that you were born for something. You feel that you're destined for it. I think it is interesting to reflect on just how rare things are. For example, there are 3,000 billionaires. He explicitly said that one of the things he looks for is that demon, that insecurity in the person. I mean, doesn't everyone have a chip on their shoulder? It's just like how big the chip is. There is a deep satisfaction that comes from mastery. People are told like, you can do this. You have to do this, in fact, right? Like you're born to do this. Real winners are people who know their limits and respect them. Maybe state champion was enough. But if I'm being really honest as well, I think there probably is some insecurity in the pursuit, which is driven by the chip on the shoulder. Somewhere along the way, I'm like, surfers are cool and I want to be cool. Oh, yeah, that's a deep question. (laughs) Do you think you can be ambitious and happy? I think, I think the answer is. Welcome back to the shit you don't learn in school podcast. It is a sleepy Friday night. We're inside and I am Calvin Rosser. And I'm Steph Smith. And today or tonight or whatever it is, we're going to be talking about the cost of excellence. So, Steph, we were recently on a little vacation. We went to Napa. Yeah. Una vacacion. Is that how you say that? I don't know. You're the one who should know that. Yeah, I guess I should know that. But oh, well. Your best friend was in town and we were visiting wineries as you do in the Napa Valley. And we went to some cool places, felt like I learned a bunch of stuff. I'm probably going to forget it in a month, which is why we're recording some of it now. But I think one of the key interesting things that we learned and followed up on was about sommeliers, which are people who... Sommeliers. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to keep you saying keep sommeliers. saying it like tamales. It's, <laughs> it's an E, isn't it? I'm going to keep saying sommeliers. <laughs> and and we're going to move forward here. So we learned okay. that these people who are basically wine experts, but sommeliers also pair that with. <laughs> All right. So we got <laughs> we got derailed and Calvin has found the correct pronunciation. Sommelier. Sommelier. <laughs> OK, so I think I was wrong. I, I don't know. You were wrong, I... too. <laughs> I'm not saying sommelier. <laughs> I refuse. Anyways, we learned about this group of people who are experts with wine. They pair it with food. If you've ever been to like a fine dining restaurant and had a wine pairing, that's usually designed in conjunction with like a chef and a sommelier. And the fascinating thing that we learned is that there are these people called master psalms, and they are part of this exclusive group of people who pass this really hard test. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. There is this thing called the Court of Master Sommeliers. Oh gosh, I can't even say it. Some Sommeliers, Master Psalms. I think there's like several different tests that you take or certifications. And the top pillar is the Master Psalm. 
And what's fascinating is that a lot of people around the world actually regard this test, the master sum test, as one of, if not the hardest test in the world. So here are a couple stats. The first test ever was in 1969. And since then, only 273 people have ever passed. That's not in one year, that's ever. And of the people who have ever tried it, they have around a 10% pass rate. So not that many people try it because I think they realize it's so incredibly hard. You can also only take it one time per year. So if you fail, you have to wait till the next year. Only 14 people have ever passed on their first try. And just to give a little color in terms of what the test actually is, it's three days long. There's three segments on theory, service, and tasting. And I think the tasting part is one that you basically sit down for 25 minutes. You have to taste six different wines. You have no information other than smelling and tasting. And you're supposed to be able to know what varietals the wine might be, the age range, the region, and probably much more that I don't know or understand. And to give a sense of how crazy this is that people can actually sense this, in Italy alone, there are over 3,000 varietals. And so I think they're not expected to get it like 100% right. But the point is, it's incredibly hard because for people like you and I, I have no idea what I'm drinking. I have no idea, you know, the different undertones and fruits and all this stuff that that these master psalms can taste. And one little other nugget that I thought was interesting was just whether you pass or fail, they do not tell you what the wines were. That's got to be so frustrating if you actually are taking this test to just like never learn what they really were. But yeah, isn't it crazy that people actually pursue this? And I mean, I'm curious from you because we then went and watched the movie Psalm, which is about, I think, four different people who were pursuing their Master Psalm certification. And it was kind of wild to see. Yeah, I would say even if you have no interest in wine, but you're just kind of interested in humans who do weird stuff, go watch some. It was definitely a good documentary and gave color and human-based insight into this process. And these people are nuts. I mean, they were all dudes in the movie. And most of them seem to have their marriages and general relationships just totally on the brink (laughs) and certainly didn't look like fun people to drink wine with. So as to what was driving them and why they did this, I don't know. I guess it's prestigious and they've learned a lot of things. But for me, with wine, it's like, is this good or is this not good? And that's always been enough. I do like learning things, but I've never been that interested in going too deep because it's one of those things that has so much complexity. And that documentary really highlights that. Yeah. I mean, when I see people doing ambitious things, like we watched the Michael Jordan documentary and I've seen other documentaries about really incredible, ambitious people, it always makes me want to like sit up and do more. And this was one of the few things where I saw this and I was like, I will never pursue this certification. Like, this is just such a wild endeavor to take on. And you just see it in the film. You're just like, oh my gosh, they're constantly studying. They're constantly drinking and spitting out wine. I think one of the big takeaways really was that their partners were in the film. And yeah, you could just see how it impacted every part of their life. I mean, I think one of the partners even said like... (laughs) Let's just say his name was John, who was pursuing the test. His partner was like, yeah, John, probably the most important thing in his life is this, this master psalm test. And then 
probably it's its family and then probably me. <laughs> it's just funny. I guess she had accepted it, but um, there was another person who was like, yeah, he got it on the fourth try, but I kind of had a talk with him before that attempt. And if he didn't pass, we were going to have to talk. Like, basically, she was like, we were going to get a divorce. Yeah, it's wild. And if that sounds interesting to you and you actually watched that, I also followed up with an Apple TV series called Drops of God. And Ooh. it's a fictional thing, but it's about delving into the world of wine. And it's a really cool story and competition that's created after one of the great like wine tasters or people in the wine industry dies. And he does it for two people in his life. And you kind of learn about the world of wine in a similar way, but through this fictional story. And I found that super fascinating too, if you just keep going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So I think obviously the documentary really opened up my world to wine and this this whole idea of a uh, master psalm. But I think what it really got me thinking about was just all of the different ways that ambitious people I guess, go to prove themselves or take on these like massive endeavors. I mean, I feel like society really values a few slices of that, like actors, singers, athletes. We kind of adore Olympians, for example, but there's all these other ways where you can like really dedicate yourself. And I think the other side, which we mentioned is just like, there is a double-edged sword to pure, pure dedication and ambition. And so it really just made me think of what drives someone, like what drove these four people to want to do this. And I think there was one character in particular where you could see it was like such a deep, important drive. Like I kind of, I kind of worried about him, you know, like if he, you know, whether he passed or not, we were like, oh my gosh, this, this is not like a healthy relationship with this endeavor yeah that character i think was ian and i think i've embodied his headspace before where i feel like something has to happen otherwise i'm not going to be okay that's kind of how i would characterize yeah. what he was going through but i think when you're in that place you're somehow increasing the likelihood that you're going to be successful because you have this deep deep drive that is moving you to push as hard as you can to make this thing happen but even when you do, there's the cost of the pursuit. And then there's the fact that once you get it, it probably won't make you happy, at least in a lasting way. You sort of will move the goalposts. Now, mm -hmm. the master SOM test might be different because it's like less than 300 people have passed it. And it truly is like a remarkable thing that impacts your career in somewhat enduring ways. So it is kind of a sniff test for, are you world-class at this? But I don't know. I, I would like to talk a little bit more generally about like hyper ambition and the relationship between that and other parts of your life and your general satisfaction at some point. But I don't know if you want to discuss some other hard tests or other feats of humans first. Yeah. Why don't we just super quickly talk about the different ways that humans do really hard things. So if you actually Google the hardest tests in the world, many of the things that come up are intelligence-based tests. Actually, what's interesting is the master SOM diploma exam is, is, I think, the only one on a lot of these listicles that is not purely intelligence-based. Like, there's service, there's, again, like, the smelling, the tasting, versus just a brain, I guess, written paper exam. I'll just call out a few out of interest. Like, there's this one Gaokao exam in China, which is 
nine hours over two to three days. And I think that's the like quintessential test, which allows you to gain access or admission to China's version of the Ivy League. So it's really, there's a lot of pressure on Chinese students in this test to basically, I think, do what you kind of did getting into Princeton, which is like, if you are incredibly smart from a poor area, for example, that is your jumping board, your stepping stone to what you might consider a much better life. So that's one of the quote unquote hardest tests in the world. There also was this civil services exam for administrative posts in India that I thought was really interesting because it was for things like the foreign service or the police service. And I don't know if something similar exists in America, but that was one that had such a low pass rate. It had a 0.2% pass rate. So like if 500 people take the exam, is that, yeah, that's one person passes, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I guess I should be taking more of these exams so I, <laughs> I can do I can do math on the fly again. Anyway, other ones were things like the CFA, Mensa, which is interesting because I saw this quote, which is like Mensa, if you're a really smart person, <laughs> Mensa is really easy to get into. If you're not, then it's like <laughs> impossible, right? So anyway, those you might consider professional examinations. And then there's other ones we can go into like athletic achievements, adventurous challenges, skill-based distinctions, which is like the master SOM, military and survival training were things that came up. So, you know, there's other avenues. Yeah, there's like the, maybe the green berets. Like I know that- What's that? That's something to do. It's like a small class of military operatives who- Ooh does like the most high profile missions, but even the Navy SEAL tests alone, I had a buddy who went through that and that is just absolutely brutal. I don't know how it compares to other tests or like the creme de la creme of the military, but there's some definitely really difficult things in those domains as well. Let's play a fun game actually, because that made me think if you could choose either the Navy SEAL test, the master SOM diploma, the act of becoming a chess grandmaster, doing the seven summits, or an Ironman triathlon, which one of those do you think you could do? I think I might be able to do a few of them. Not all of them, definitely. But the one that piques my interest the most is the seven summits. Is that like hiking seven peaks or what is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. And guess how many people have actually done this? How many? Yes. Mm, hopefully hundreds, because if not, then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, since the idea was first conceived in the 1950s, only about 500 people have succeeded. Okay. So that one's exciting to me in the sense that there's some adventure to it. And in the process of training to do these hikes, you'd probably get to see some of the most badass places in the world, which is really cool. So it's it's almost like, Oh, you have to be fit. You get to see cool places. And then you did this thing that is also cool. But then the other ones, I don't know. I don't want to be a SEAL because I don't want to be in the military. And then I'm not going to be a chess master. I don't even know the rules of chess. Yeah. But which ones could you do? Like, just because you do the SEAL training doesn't mean you have to be a SEAL. I actually don't think I have the mental fortitude to do the SEAL training. In learning about that, I just, I'm kind of resistant to authority, which is why I'm... <laughs> do the job that I do. And that's all about just getting kind of beat up on that requires like pretty amazing physical strength and endurance and 
mental mm -hmm. resilience. And I'm not sure I have that or ever did. Yeah, it's interesting because the SEAL challenge feels like an interesting marriage between mental and physical challenge versus something like a grandmaster, like that's purely intellectual. And then I feel like the seventh summit, that's purely physical. But I feel like the SEAL training is like double whammy. Yeah, I think I converge on, I probably don't want to do any of these things. And <laughs> I don't know, there's some middle ground. Let's talk about this at the end, the right balance between ambition and pushing yourself. But what do you think you could do? I mean, I'm biased because I used to play chess and there is a little seed in me, even though it's probably wrong, that thinks I could become a grandmaster. Do I want to do that? As in, do I want to put in the amount of effort that is required to do that? I think the answer is no. I also think one of the reasons the answer would be no is because there is this doubt that I don't want to validate in a way, you know, like I kind of want to keep it murky. I kind of want to continue believing that I could do it if I really wanted to versus validating, oh, actually, I really tried and I failed. Well, what's interesting is I bet you couldn't pass any of these tests or do any of these feats without having a doubt that drives you. Well, I mean, it's interesting because if we talk about the psychology, you do hear these stories where like, for example, if you watch the Kanye documentary, you really get this sense that he felt like he would always make it, like he always knew it was a matter of time. But then to your point, there's other people where, you know, I don't know if that's the case. Maybe what was actually driving some of these people to become Olympians or to, you know, open three Michelin star restaurants was like a doubt of I'm not good enough. I don't know if I can make it. So it's interesting because it almost feels like you could be the chip on the shoulder or the like, I'm the best in the world and I always have been. Well, I think there's the interesting thing of I'll use, I don't know if there's an example other than Kanye, but I don't really want to talk about him because. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I'm I'm not like validating him. Just I think a lot of people had watched his documentary before everything else happened. Right. But I think if you unpack let's just say that style, which is you really believe in yourself, you feel that you were born for something, you feel that you're destined for it. I don't know if that always comes just from a place of like, healthy or unhealthy confidence, there may mm -hmm. be some chip on your shoulder that you feel that you have to do that to make your life fulfilled in some way or to live up to your potential. And so it's almost just like a different way of motivating yourself, which is more of an overconfidence in your abilities that kind of drives you to maybe push yourself further than if you did increase those doubts. But then there's the negative way of motivating yourself, which is, hey, I'm not going to be okay unless I get this, or I have to prove this to make my ex-girlfriend who said that I'm not going to make <laughs> anything of my life somehow wrong. Like there's a lot of that too. So I, I feel yeah. like those are just two different pathways to pursuing things that are outlier successes, like multiple standard deviations above the norm. By the way, I was laughing there because I saw this tweet recently and it was a screenshot of someone who he said something like, my girlfriend left me 10 years ago. Since then, I did this and I'm running this business making X revenue and I whatever, whatever. <laughs> and then someone just quote tweeted it and was just like, she's still living rent free in your brain, buddy. And like, it's, it's so <laughs> true how these like tiny little things from people's past 
can just drive them to invest six years of their life in, you know, becoming a master SOM or some other crazy endeavor. That reminds me of two things. The first is that there's another type of tweet that's related to that where someone says something similar and they're, then they're like, but she married a billionaire and she still made the right decision. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw that one. That one, I think, was a joke, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't <laughs> joke or not. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. It's, it's like, yeah, I don't know. She's probably not thinking of you. And that's what I thought of next, which is there's a scene in Mad Men that has been memed a lot, but it's Don Draper, the main character. And he's looking at a subordinate who's really confident in himself. And he's like, I'm better than you, Don. And Don's like, I don't even think about you. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, that's such a such a win. Be, care be careful who you allow to live rent free in your brain. Maybe that's the lesson. Yeah, for real. Okay, you mentioned billionaires. I think another fun thing to quickly go over before we talk about whether we think it's worth pursuing these things is just what are the things where such few people have actually accomplished? So we talked about like the master psalm, 273 people have ever passed. There's other things where not that many people can claim a title. So for example, there's around 3,000 billionaires in the world. Another thing we learned in Napa was that there are these things called master coopers, which coopers are the people who build barrels, which fun fact, give 70% of flavor to wine. So these people are really important, these 19 people. How do you spell Cooper? Is it K-O-O-O-O-P-O-R? <laughs> no, you're making fun of me because I asked the guy and it's it's apparently just Cooper, C-O-O-P-E-R. But okay, so there's 19 master Coopers. That's not a lot of people. There are apparently 40, quote, super grandmasters, which I think is above 2,700 rating. So really high, not just grandmaster, super grandmaster. And so I found a few more of these. And I would love for you to just take super rapid fire guesses at how many people have done each of these things. Let's do it. Okay. How many people have made it to orbit? 345. So apparently as of June, 603. How many Nobel Prizes have been awarded? 137. 603. There is something called the EGOT, which stands for Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. So these are EGOT winners are people who have won at least one of each. How many people have achieved that? 13. 18. All right. Keep it moving. There's something called the K2 Summit, which apparently fewer people have summited than Everest. How many people have summited K2 without supplemental oxygen? 185. Less than 500 climbers since the first ascent in 1954. How many times person of the years have there been? 100. <laughs> yeah, around 100. Started in 1927. There's this thing called the Barkley Marathon, which is an ultra-distance race held in Frozen Head State Park somewhere in Tennessee. And the course varies from year to year, but it consists of five loops of a 20-plus mile off-trail course for a total of 100 miles. But the interesting thing is that it's limited to a 60-hour period. How many people have successfully completed a Berkeley Marathon? 271. As of 2021, in its three-decade history, only 17 runners have finished. Final one is how many three Michelin star restaurants are there in the world as of today? 172. 138. 
All right. So now you have a little bit of a flavor of the different things that like you could say anywhere from like tens to thousands of people have accomplished, which is, you know, a small percent of the world. Yeah. Wow. These people are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So maybe the next interesting question is like, is there anything that you think you've done that would be, you know, if we say what is 0.1% of the world? For me? Well, what is the number even times 7 billion people? So, whoa, is that right? 0.1% of the world is, is 7 million people. So if we're talking 7,000 people would be 0.0001% of the world has done something. Is there something that you think you would be able to say that about? Well, probably if you got specific enough, like I could say of (laughs) blonde males born in Florida in the 1990s (laughs) and then go on from there and name something really specific. Okay, okay. But I guess you could say, what is something that someone might create like an actual distinction for? Right. I think if there's anything where I'm in like a really low percentage of people, like one obvious one would just be going to Princeton. There's only 1,300 kids per year so you're naturally a, a part of a yeah but extreme... isn't princeton really old yeah but do that math it's okay 1746 is when princeton started okay and the class size probably increased over time so it's 277 years times how big 1300 is the current class but let's say on average it's like 750 since that time I don't know how to think about this because also when you think about, I use 7 billion people, but a lot of these things are like the number of people who have done it ever, you know? Right. I think we're getting a little bit lost in the trees <laughs> okay. here and not seeing okay, the forest. So, but but Princeton be I, your top one, do you think? I would, I would say Princeton is probably one where I'm just a part of a small group of people who went to that specific school, but- probably the one where if you wanted to compare it more on a global population, I have been to, I think, 40, maybe a few more than that countries since I was 18. And so of the people who have traveled X number of countries, I would probably, I think, be a part of a relatively small group of people. That's not even something I was like necessarily trying to do, but it's one that like by the choices of my life, Mm -hmm. I ended up doing. And I would say that's one where I'm likely a part of a smaller group than many other things that I've done or tried. Yeah, I think that would probably be the same for me. And it's kind of interesting to your point that we didn't really try to do that. It's not like we were actually saying, hey, we want to go get this distinction because it it isn't a distinction. But yeah, it probably is where we're in the 0.001% at least. Yeah, it's kind of weird to just naturally fall into that type of path, because if you think about the 7 billion people on Earth, even a small percentage of those even have the opportunity to do something like that. And then a some fraction of the people who can even want to do something like that. I guess we did look up a stat. It was like, there's some people who have been to 100 countries, which yeah. I guess if you're trying to compete in the Olympics of how many countries have I traveled to, which is hashtag lame. And <laughs> Maybe you try to join that club, but how many people have done that? Yeah. So 
On that note, I've met a handful of people during my travels where like you can tell that's exactly what they're trying to do. And there was even this one woman who I remember right when I started nomading, I didn't know her, but I just saw her on social media who went to, I think, every country or recognized state in a year. But I was like, you're literally spending a day in every place. That was the extreme version. But I guess what I'm proud of that we did was, I mean, we were truly just trying to go to the places we wanted to. And that ended up amounting to, in my case, 50, your case, 40. And to your point, there is something called the Traveler's Century Club, which was founded in California in 1954 and now has over 1,400 members throughout the world. And to be a part, you have to have traveled to over 100 countries. All right. So it looks like we're losers. We didn't make the group. (laughs) No. I mean, I think it does give you a sense. So if there's 1,400 members who have been to 100, there's definitely some non-linear nature to this. But I'd probably guess that, I don't know, there's like tens of thousands who have been to 50 or 40. Yeah. And if you really wanted to dive into the data here, my guess is people in Europe on average travel to many more countries because the countries are smaller. There's maybe more of a culture of travel. It's easier to get more places. But if you're born in the US to make it to 40 other places, like that's, I don't know, I'm going to give myself a little pat on the back, even though that's not how I build my identity. I will say though, that there was a little piece of me when I was traveling that I think had this little, you know, voice being like, Ooh, look at me. I'm so cool. Having traveled to this many countries. And I now see how dumb and silly that is. And even Now, I think I've finally gotten to the place where I will go back to places that I enjoyed and not just simply go to new places because I'm like, okay, I'm not going to see every place in the world. Might as well just go somewhere I know I like or where there's something going on or where there's people that I really care about. And that's become a lot more important than touching new ground. Mm -hmm. I think it is interesting to reflect on just how rare things are. For example, there are 3,000 billionaires. And I think that's something people are pretty familiar with in terms of like, wow, being a billionaire is really rare, really, really hard and extremely rare. And so if you think about it, it's like, oh, there's only 3,000 billionaires, all these other things where there's only 500 or those 18 EGOT winners, that's like so crazy rare, you know? And even for us, like maybe we're not in that traveler's century club with 1,400 people, you can compare and be like, what we did is pretty rare. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a little hard to compare these things on a numbers basis because one is over what time period were people doing this? Yep. And then the other thing is how many people actually attempt to do this? So if more people attempted to visit 100 countries, that's not actually that hard to do in the sense that you could even do it within a single year and all you need is money and some free time to go do that. Whereas some of these other things... It's like the physical difficulty of the task will take out many people, even those who tried. And so that's another thing if you were to try to accurately compare the, I don't know, impressiveness of these types of things. Yeah. And there's another lens too, which is some of these awards or distinctions are determined in different ways. So some of them, there's just a threshold you have to hit. Like, can you do this or can you not? Can you travel to a bunch of countries? Can you ascend these summits? There's other ones where you're competing directly against other people, but there's like a very, very clear set of guideposts, like, you know, swim faster than this time to be an Olympian. 
But then there are some distinctions or awards where you don't actually even know what the criteria is in order to get it. So some of those awards are things like Pulitzer Prizes, Nobel Prizes, like there are people who are scientists or writers who just do it for their whole life. And, you know, in some way, maybe they're loosely vying for those prizes, but they they never actually know what they need to do to get one. Yeah, I guess you could probably just break down these tests into different domains. So there's physical achievements, there's intellectual achievements. In the case of, say, like a Pulitzer Prize or Nobel Prize, you probably have to do some sort of like socializing in addition to your achievements to be known within the right groups of people or to be selected by these committees. You could think of the president as well. That would be a very rare feat. You have to somehow Mm -hmm. win the popular vote and climb up the ranks of political realms. So all of these competitions, they're somewhat difficult to compare. There are a few people who have won multiple awards, different kinds of awards, which I think is interesting because for most of these things, it does feel like you need to dedicate your whole life to one thing and hope that you ascend to the top or that point, oh, whatever percent. So I'll just call out three of them that I was able to find with the help of ChatGPT, which I did check. So Bob Dylan has won the Nobel Prize in literature, but also has won multiple Grammy Awards. Al Gore has won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on climate. And then he's also won two Academy Awards for his film, An Inconvenient Truth. And then can you guess the last one that I was able to find? Nope. He's a president. Obama? Yeah. So that's one thing, which wasn't even part of the other two things that he's done, which is he's won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. And then he's also won several Grammys for his spoken word albums, which I did not know. Well, hats off to Dylan, (laughs) Obama, and who was the last one? (laughs) Gore. (laughs) And Gore. Good job, guys. (laughs) Okay, okay. Um, Where should we go? I would like to transition here to a more philosophical and practical thing, which is, as we started talking about this, I was really noodling on a question that I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And it's something along the lines of, can you be ambitious and happy? And so just to set the stage for that, I've met and engaged with, and you could even say live with, (laughs) a very ambitious cast of characters. And I think at one point in my life, I was extremely ambitious. That's how I got into Princeton and my early career. I think I I exhibited that ambition as well. But one thing that I've noticed is that I think many high achievers, specifically people who go for like outlier things, they want to be a billionaire, they want to be a star, they want to achieve some sort of outside success. There's almost always a drive that they themselves don't understand. And it seems to come from some sort of dark place, maybe from childhood. It's like, you want to make your parents proud or we joked about it, but yeah, girlfriend called you fat and now you want to be the fittest man in the world. And there's something that drives these people. And in fact, I used to work with someone who is pretty amazing capital allocator and very successful at picking entrepreneurs who build large businesses. And he explicitly said that one of the things he looks for is that demon, that insecurity in the person that is going to drive them to do what it takes to build a really large business, which requires commitment over 10 plus years. 
and incredible persistence and vision and dedication and all that. And he mm-hmm. says that he's not met one of the founders who's a part of these successful companies that isn't driven by something like this. And I think that's interesting. Definitely interesting. And I mean, doesn't everyone have a chip on their shoulder? It's just like how big the chip is. I guess so. But I think if we want to take this to a slightly different place, I've also met people who are like this and they they have some sort of edge and the edge may actually be this insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. They're driven in some deep way. And I'm thinking of one person in particular who was like, I'm like, hey, man, you might benefit from meditation. You're pretty stressed out. And he's like, yeah, I know I would benefit, but I'm really scared to lose my edge. He was like, yeah so driven by this thing, so the desire to be successful and it was built within his identity that he wasn't even willing to do something that was maybe going to help him just feel better or improve the quality of his life because he didn't want to lose this edge. And I think that's a pretty common theme among high achievers. And if I speak just for myself, I would say that I've lost my edge and it's been really difficult because I almost feel that like from a work perspective, there's nothing else I have to achieve to make Mm -hmm. my life complete. And when you get to that place, it's like very satisfying and soothing in one form, but it's also kind of scary because I don't have that like anchor to drive myself. And it actually, yeah. people will talk about, you know, find what you're passionate about, find your joy, and then everything becomes easier. And I think there's some truth to that, but a lot of people who do find their joy and pursue it and achieve excellence, I think are still driven by some sort of demon. And when you don't feel that you have to do something before you die or have to prove something to yourself, it's actually quite hard to do difficult things or to climb the ranks of any ladder. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think everything can be taken to a level where it's destructive. And I think it's hard to determine exactly where that level is because I definitely know people who work themselves to the bone and honestly seem quite fulfilled. And then other people where that's not the case. And maybe it has to do with what's driving you there and whether that is believing in yourself and what you can achieve, but in a domain where you truly want to achieve it versus I do think things can be problematic where let's say, I mean, I felt this a little bit as a kid where I was put into chess and like, I didn't choose chess. And and I think that's one of the reasons I quit, but where people are brought into certain domains and told like, you can do this. You have to do this. In fact, right? Like you're born to do this. Olympians probably like I wonder how many of them actually chose their sport and opted in and I think the same thing is true where if you're building a business because you're really excited about what you can build and bring to the world that's different than being like I I'm trying to compete with my friends to see who's going to be the richest yeah and it's sometimes hard to disentangle those motivations because they can both exist like the intrinsic and extrinsic I guess if I had to put like a value judgment on it and at least in the sense of, hey, what would lead to the most sense of satisfaction? I've always thought that you should try to develop some sort of internal motivation and actually limit the external motivation. So create something Mm -hmm. because you want to. If you get praise from other people, that's amazing. Feel good about it. But don't rely on that to have your work validated in some way, which I think is a trap that many creators fall into. I think another thing is just like how sustainable is the thing that you're pursuing? Because I think when it gets destructive, that's when it becomes an obsession. But some of these pursuits end, right? Like I I mentioned Olympians, but I do wonder how many of them after their bodies can no longer execute at the level 
that is required to be winning medals, what happens to them, especially if they're not in a widely viewed sport with a lot of dollars going towards it, you know? I think it becomes your personality, which isn't wrong, but then especially if in your pursuit of that specific thing, you've lost sight of everything else, then you're just kind of like, oh shit. Well, I think this is a just a classic dynamic that plays out, which is people, let's use business builders as an example. They think that once they get their $20 million exit, that they'll be happy and free to do whatever they want. But when they sell their company, they're actually just completely lost and depressed because the whole thing that they built their identity around, the whole thing that was motivating them is now gone. And in the absence of that, you almost have to like rebuild your own inner framework for thinking about what it is that you're even going to do. Like it creates, I think, a crisis for people. And the athlete thing may be different, which is, hey, you did this sport, you can no longer do it because your body has broken down. Or you're like Michael Phelps and you achieved more than anyone else before. And it's like, what's next? And so mm-hmm. that's where I think a lot of people, if you don't do some of that thinking beforehand, you can just end up in kind of a lost place that maybe is a driver of like midlife crises. It's why success doesn't actually fulfill you sometimes. And it's hard to disentangle that because hard things still are worth pursuing. Like there is a deep satisfaction that comes from mastery. I think another aspect to consider is just if you're really pursuing true, true mastery, which is some of the things that we talked about that neither of us have achieved, you do need to go all in, but are you sacrificing things that are irreversible? And what I mean by that is like, I don't know, did you use up all your 20s and 30s and never meet a partner? And it's not to say you can't meet a partner later, but you know, have you have you missed the boat on certain other things in your life entirely? Or the example from Psalm where it sounded like that guy saved his marriage by passing the fourth test. But you could probably imagine how there's probably someone who didn't make it through their marriage. Like they they basically sacrificed their marriage for this pursuit. And that's not necessarily wrong, but just there are trade-offs. Yeah, almost certainly. Like some of the most successful people, they are just terrible family people. Their families are like, this person just worked all the time they ignored me and it leads to like many broken families and such, but then they achieved success in this other way. And I think at the extremes, there's almost always these deep trade-offs and you almost have to just decide for yourself what you're willing to give up and whether or not what you're pursuing is worth that. And maybe many people don't do that deep thinking beforehand and they end up with regrets. I'll give you just one example. There's a book called How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. Mm -hmm. He's a media tycoon. And it's a great book. It's actually very interesting if you're trying to build a business. I think it has lots of useful nuggets and it's well-written and entertaining. But he has a quote that I really liked, which is up to just seven years ago, and he's writing this when he's like in his 60s, I was still working 12 to 16 hours a day making money with hundreds of millions of dollars in assets. I just could not let go. Like I said, it was pathetic because whoever dies with the most toys doesn't win. Real winners are people who know their limits and respect them. And he said this in the context of going on to say that if he could do it all over again, he would dedicate himself to earning enough money by the age of 35, which for him was 60 to $80 million. Funny (laughs) how he came up with that number. And then he would cash out and spend his days planting trees and writing poetry. In hindsight, basically, he did not think that amassing all this wealth and dedicating himself into his 60s was worth it. And he also shares these stories of how he spent, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars on like drugs and hookers 
and oh. destroyed his whole relationships and all of this. So, I mean, it's really interesting when you hear stories like that. He puts it in a raw, vulnerable way. At the same time, he's kind of teaching you how to get rich. But his ultimate conclusion is he would do it differently. And I think a lot of people end up like that. At the same time, the guy lived like a really adventurous life and did do a bunch of things. But I in no way wanted to be him after reading that book. It, in fact, it affirmed more of my I'm comfortable with a lot less approach. Maybe the lesson there is just knowing your own limit because a lot of these pursuits have arbitrary limits that are defined for you, right? Like even a just like billionaire. That's that's a pretty pretty concrete destination, you know? And I wonder how many people pursue things just because there is some sort of finish line that they see other people getting to, but really it has nothing to do with what they would want, you know? And and that's the money example, but I'm sure there are others where it's like, oh, maybe state champion was enough for some people, but then they, they kept going because I guess someone told them that they could and should do more. Yeah. Complicated stuff. We're not going to solve it here, but I want to introduce one last little piece of this part of the discussion, which is on the topic of an edge and whether that's driven internally or externally, I think there's also the dark side of the edge. And so we look to the ambitious people who were Olympians and successful entrepreneurs and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, wow, they did some really impressive things. But I think that same edge is actually what drives people into things like deep drug addiction or other paths that ultimately destroy your life. There's some unmet, unfulfilled need, and you're trying to, instead of covering that up by your ambition within business, which society generally values, at least in the United States, you're covering that up by your alcohol addiction or falling into other types of patterns like that, that is really about suppressing this thing inside you that you don't want to live with and that is hard to live with. And I think there's just many, I would say, like fallen soldiers and and people who suffer from not confronting this edge. And so I, I want to point that out because I, I think it's an interesting piece of this idea of being driven by things that you don't quite understand and that are unresolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, even if we're talking about how people pursue excellence in certain spheres, I used the term obsession before, but I do think people fall into the realm of addiction to pursuing things and um i would even say that i don't know if this is a good thing that they're addicted to business but like if they weren't addicted to business for example they they might be addicted to something else that might be even more destructive you know yeah and i have friends who are very aware of this i mean they'll say they have an addictive personality but basically they know if they dive into something that they might become obsessed with it or take it to the extreme And when you have that penchant for one reason or another, you might stay away from something like cocaine, which taken to the extreme leads to really bad outcomes. Yeah. Can you answer your question from earlier, though? Do you think you can be ambitious and happy? I think I think the answer is yes, but it exists on some sort of scale. So I think if you're trying to be at the top of a field, like truly the best at something, it's very unlikely that you would have that ambition 
if you're approaching it from a healthy perspective. Because I think once you have those inner demons worked out, like, why is it that I lost my edge? Well, I got some financial security. I wrestled with some of the things from my childhood and became comfortable with them. I figured out who I was by traveling and doing some deep thinking. Like I became more secure in myself. And so all these other pursuits, like who was I doing them for? I was doing them for myself, but in the absence of not having like an unhealthy inner landscape, I no longer have anything to like really drive me to pursue what I would call like the top of anything. So I'm like, hey, I want to publish a book. I really want to do it just for me, not to make anyone else proud. But whether I do it or not, I don't have to do it to be like, okay with my life. And I think when you get to that point, it's very hard to pursue ambition at the extremes. So I I would think of it in that way is like, I have things I want to do, but I don't have to do them. And that means that I probably will not be the absolute most excellent thing at anything. But what would you say about the people who, for example, like the astrophysicist that I spoke to recently, who has a Nobel prize, he's now the senior project scientist on the James Webb telescope, which is, I think, the most advanced telescope in the world right now. So he's done some pretty like kick-ass things. You know, when I talked to him, he just seemed to love astrophysics. He just seemed to love science. So that's an example of someone where, I mean, I don't know him well, but I didn't see this like unhealthy relationship. It just seemed like a true curiosity that led to excellence. But maybe that's it. He's following his curiosity and he so happens to earn some credentials and things that you find impressive along the way. But he's not ambitious in the sense that he's trying to pursue some sort of accolade to prove that he was a good scientist. Now, I don't know this guy at all, but I'm just saying that you could just like we did with travel. I wasn't doing that to be the best traveler in the world or anything like that, but achieve some sort of modicum of success in a domain just because you're following your interest. Let's close this off with a question which is, I guess we've already addressed that we probably are never going to be on some list where, you know, only one person gets some distinction every year. But is there something that you do feel ambition towards where you want to be one of the best, or at least the best that you can be, where you, you feel really driven to master it? Yeah, I think the obvious one for me, if I just simply look at how I spent my time in the last few years is surfing. I picked up the sport when I was traveling and then I've become somewhat obsessed with it in a way that I'm pursuing it as a form of mastery. Like I dedicate my workouts to figuring out how I can be a better surfer. I think about what I put in my body with food and nutrition to improve my surfing. I now travel to places so that I can surf there. I on Tuesday was at a skate park with kids and another 30 year old man on a skateboard trying to get better at surfing moves. And I was like, what am I doing here? But it really is all to get better at this thing. And it's funny because I'll never be world-class since I learned as an adult, but I do think that there is a next level that I would like to get to. And that I feel if I have the time and energy and my body stays healthy, that I really do want to get to. And it really is just for me. And I'm really enjoying like the mastery and the benefits that come from the sport. But if I'm being really honest as well, I think there probably is some insecurity in the pursuit, which is driven by the chip on the shoulder somewhere along the way. I'm like, surfers are cool and I want to be cool. And (laughs) some piece of me is like, if I can rip on a shortboard in ways that I find impressive, like I'm cool. Finally, 
you know, so that there is something there to that as well. And I don't know, I don't think about that often, but there's an element in the pursuit that is driven by that. And maybe that's what keeps me going so hard. And, you know, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with that. Do you remember the scene in The Bear season two where Cousin, what's his name? Is it just Cousin? Let's just call him Cousin. Cousin goes away and goes to this fancy restaurant and then he comes back and he wants to be a better version of himself and he's wearing this suit and everyone keeps asking him like, yo, Cousin, like, why are you wearing the suit? And he's like, I just wear suits now. But then in one of the conversations, he's like, because it makes me feel more confident. He said that to the the sister. And I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. If you can do something and it's not harmful and it just makes you feel more confident. And if that's surfing for you, I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I do, too, obviously. But I think, (laughs) yeah, just to restate something from earlier in case I misconstrued what I think, I don't think it's bad to be driven by negative motivations. Like I was called chubby fat when I was 11. And that inspired me to not be fat anymore and to learn about health. And there's some sort of shame based um, approach that I still carry with me today to trying to be fit and healthy into adulthood. And I actually accept that as a decent motivator because it keeps me healthy, which is something I want. I think the problem is when you pursue things relentlessly and give up the things that you actually care about for the things that you don't. So if you get that Mm -hmm. successful exit, but you lose your marriage along the way and losing that marriage is the biggest regret of your life, that was a bad trade to make. And so that's where you have to be more careful and nuanced about what is driving you. That's actually a much better framing than we got to 15 minutes ago. Like, I think that is the framing. Yeah. Okay. You're trading things that you want for things that you don't actually want deep down. What about you? Are you ambitious in any domains? I mean, you work all the time, so I imagine there's something going on there. Yeah, but I don't think it's quite the kind of ambition that we're talking about. Like, there's no specific title that I'm looking for. I do want to, I guess, like in one way, I think I really want to be prolific with time. I want to create a lot of things in this life. And In some way, I I think I will never be something like artist of the year because I want to create so many different types of things, whether it's content or companies or art. Like, I I think I I really want to be driven by the things I am excited to put out there. And I think that'll change a lot with time. But yeah, I think that's the thing that drives me the most. And it probably is from chip on the shoulder kind of thing. I also think it's driven by the idea that like I will be dead one day and I, I even if this is a silly idea, I want to leave behind things that I'm proud of. Do you think that you're well calibrated with your sensors of what would be prolific? Like when you get to that point, would there be the sense of, oh, I did enough? It doesn't mean that you wouldn't do more, but that you're not just continuing to move the goalposts. I ask in part because I think with surfing, I, I kind of have a, a rough benchmark of what that is. And it doesn't mean I won't keep going down that domain, but there is something that I'm not yet to that I do want to hit that I feel that I would be able to identify once it's there. Probably not. (laughs) Okay. That's your challenge for the day. Okay. Okay. One of the reasons I say probably not is because I, I genuinely see myself creating things for decades and it's not some specific goldpost where it's like, Oh, I hit a certain amount of money or 
prestige and therefore I stop, you know? I totally understand that. I'm more getting at it from not, oh, I'm going to retire and stop doing things, but that you would just be actually proud of yourself for your level of prolificness, something that would be a deep satisfaction knowing that you didn't waste your time on this earth before you died. Oh, yeah, that's a deep question. <laughs> okay, maybe we won't get to the answer to today. All right, well, you noodle on that for the rest of your life. Why don't we move on to what I hope to be one of the key points here, which is I think it's good to do hard things. And I have seen some of my friends, I think the classic example, it's people who do half marathons or marathons or they do ultra marathons. But dedicating yourself to something that's hard in that way, I think is a really good thing to do as an adult, particularly because I would characterize the modern world as quite cushy. You can literally mm -hmm. order anything to your doorstep with just the click of a button. And it's easy to get sort of complacent or I don't know, to not push yourself in some domains. And it's one of the reasons I love surfing. Like sometimes I, I feel like I'm going to die and I regularly visualize like a great white getting me. And there's just all these things that come with trying to get better that probably don't sound fun to other people, but that I think do make me a stronger, more resilient person in ways that I want to be. And that in the absence of that, I think would be hard to get. And there's a framework from this guy who I'm pretty wishy-washy on called David Goggins. He's like an influencer, former Navy SEAL, but he has this rule called the 40% rule. And he says that most of us tap into only 40% of our capabilities. And that would be the point, let's say when you're running, when you're like, I can't go any further. He thinks you actually have 60% more in the tank and that mm. you can slowly kind of push yourself to capture more of that 60% if you just work on your mental resilience and push yourself further than you think. And I think running is a classic domain where I stop probably at like 30%. I'm so yeah. weak there. But I always admire people who find the domains that they enjoy enough to kind of push into that extra 60%. And I think it's a really healthy thing to do as an adult and worth doing, whether it's a career or a classic ambition, but mostly just something you enjoy is another good way to do it. I totally agree. One of my favorite things to do is just watch documentaries about people who do amazing things. And I do think that's one really beautiful part of, I think, humanity is that we do celebrate people who do really crazy shit. And if anything, I just wish that was extended to more disciplines. You know, there are certain things that people really respect and follow and adulate is that a word adulate i don't know and if it is i don't think that's the right way like to adulation use it. isn't it adulation like, is like praise yeah that's what i'm saying people okay. like really praise people who do awesome things i see i see i see um anyway so i think that's a great place to end off i think i think it's worth people pursuing really hard things even if they're small and weird and maybe not super common and maybe let's revisit the last part of the quote from Felix Dennis, which is real winners are people who know their limits and respect them. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Until next time, folks.